Welcome, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm Paul Neifer, your host, and today I'm welcoming Dan Bassey from Ag Resource. How are you doing, Dan? Well, I'm doing really well, but the, the days seem to be short and the nights are short, Paul. There's so much going on. It's, it's, it's causing me as an old man to lose more hair than I need to. <laughs> well, I resemble that remark already. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't have any excess hair to give to you. My my kids still have a lot, but I've warned them just wait about 20 years and and it'll probably change on them a little bit. But, uh, uh, you know, we'll go ahead and get started on your background. But, uh, you know, the, the, we're taping this on March 3rd and, you know, weed has been limited up basically for three days. The front contract uh uh, did it really settle today already? Isn't it up? Uh, well, or I saw well, something that, saying it's up a couple bucks, but I, that didn't make sense to me. What's going on in the wheat market? Well, it, it really did should make sense to you, Paul. We settled limit up. And when we look at the synthetic options or we look at March futures, which has no limit, uh, it was up $2.30 a bushel. So in the last four days, wheat has now rallied more than any time we can find on an absolute or percentage basis looking backwards to the 1960s. I didn't get, go back further than that. I didn't see the need, but at least in modern times, it's been a tremendous rally as the world's lost the world's first and third largest wheat exporter, at least based on the Ukrainian war. And, and of course, everybody's adjusting their balance sheets and trying to find trade flows accordingly. Well, and even, even let's say, you know, they shut off the war tomorrow. We know that's not going to happen, but isn't there been a major damages to the ports? Isn't there just, you know, you got a million people that have left the country. Are they even going to be able to plant, you know, their spring crop or is even half their crop available for harvest anyway? Do you have any ideas what's going on there? So we we have several Ukrainian cu uh, customers that are sizable farmers, and we have uh, uh, I have a good friend over there named Sergey Filioff who runs a UK Agro Consult. There we're in we've been in communication, and you know th the biggest problem the farmers have is not knowing about their help. Uh, it seems like communications with uh, uh, Oblast managers have been difficult. They don't really know where they're at. They may have 70% of their seed laid in. They probably have 70% of their fertilizer and chemicals, and they were expecting to get the last of that before the uh, uh, the invasion. And I got to tell you, they are all surprised by the invasion. I think most Ukrainians in Russia thought Putin wouldn't go in. And so when this happened, uh, they're they're remorseful. The Russians are remorseful uh, for his uh, intrusion and the Ukrainians are mad and just shocked by it all. So um, finding employees to sit on tractors or manage a 10,000 hectare track is going to be the real key as we get into April and May. Yeah, because uh, seed doesn't plant itself. I mean, that's uh, that's the reality. Now, weeds might plant themselves, but wheat, wheat doesn't tend to plant itself. And of course, you would then also have... Uh, they're what the number, what two or three exporter of corn? What 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 rank are they Actually, on the number corn four, side? Number, number four, four exporter of corn and the number one exporter of sun oil. Sun oil being from sunflower seeds and kernel is the biggest processor of sunflower seeds in Ukraine. Uh, they have taken all their plants down. They are no longer processing. Of course, their silos are full of sun oil, unable to transport it. And it's the infrastructure damage. The longer this goes on, to your point, uh, the harder it is to get the Ukrainians back online. So, 
you know, if the if the if the war were to end in a week, that would be helpful. But you know, we can only keep praying that uh, Putin somehow sees a, a a way forward or finds a way of grace to step away from this, because otherwise, this uh, Ukrainian country is going to get pretty bloodied and beat up, and it's just going to be a shame for world agriculture. Yeah, and the longer that this goes, the less likely, or the, you know, well. You don't know what he's going to do. I mean, uh, I I don't think any. Well, he probably right now doesn't even know what he's going to do. So, uh, uh, so. But uh, well, let's get back to uh, uh, talking more about Dan individually. Just uh, for our audience out there, I'm sure they'd be very interested to uh, hear about your career, where you started, maybe where you went to school. Um, and again, you and I are maybe close to the same age, so we got a few years to talk about. So uh, let's go ahead and start with that. Well, we'll try. I, I guess what we're both saying, Paul, is we're old men and been in this business a long time. <laughs> I, I started in this business in 1979. I grew up on a dairy farm in southeast Wisconsin, a place called Muskego, Wisconsin. The farm is still there. It's still run by myself and my siblings. And, uh, you know, so uh, that's where it all started. I went to school to be a veterinarian, but I decided I didn't want to have my arm up a cow my whole life. So I transferred over to economics and I was fortunate enough to have a gentleman named Cope Johnson, who was a professor at the University of Wisconsin. He was a gentleman that actually uh, 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 developed the main potato contract. We used to trade made potatoes way, way back yep. when in the 60s and 70s. I remember that. And so with his help, I fell in love with the economic side of life. Um, at that point, my father gave me a hog operation, which I helped managed, and I couldn't figure out why I made money some years and lost money others. And I, I got it down to marketing, and I started to look at futures. And so my first job was in Cedar Falls, Iowa, near Pro Farmer there. Merrill Oster, of course, was running it. Lee Cyril was there. And um, I, I then went from Pro Farmer over to a guy named Richard Brock in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah before working for the chairman of the CME at that point, Brian Monison. And so I did headed up his research uh, for three, four years and then started up my own company back in 1987 named Ag Resource Company. And so I've been doing this ever since. I think we're going on, what, 35 years right now. So uh, it's been good. I've got an office in Chicago, an office in Sao Paulo, and then an office in Geneva, Switzerland. And we believe that to uh, get world, get agricultural markets right, you have to have a global perspective. So um, it used to be I would spend all my time doing American research or balance sheet analysis and all of that. But we now spend all of our time doing global stuff and under, trying to understand global cash markets. We're not well, brokers. We're not traders. We just do analysis. So there you go, Paul. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look back even 20 years ago, uh, you know, we, by far we were the largest soybean producer. Now we're number two, and uh, uh, you know, it's 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 interesting how, like you say, on a global, we're our production keeps going up, but I'm guessing our share of the world's production probably starts going down a little bit, or maybe we're still we're probably keeping even. I'm I'm not sure where exactly where we're at, but uh, uh, we we definitely know how to produce. But those other countries are catching up pretty quickly, too. Well, when I started in this business, the U.S. accounted for 62 percent of global agricultural trade. Today, that number is down to around 19 to 21 percent, depending on the year. So we've lost a lot of market share. And, and now when we think about American agriculture, we have a new concept at Ag Resource called peak farmland. In other words, with U.S. hay acreage now at the lowest level since 1909, 
uh, there's no extra acres to be gotten unless we're going to steal them from CRP. And that doesn't seem likely with Mr. Vilsack out there bidding $260 to $300 an acre and wanting to expand that three to five million acres. So as, as we sit back, it's kind of an interesting position to say that, you know, the U.S. is kind of maxed out. It's all about yield in the United States, but acreage, which we need to fulfill world demands, got to come from either the Black Sea or from Latin America. That's where the importance comes of losing the Black Sea to the market here today. Yeah, and and you know, you're talking about CRP. You know, we had uh, uh, some uh, somebody mentioned today that uh, you know we need to take some of that ground out of CRP and put it into production. Well, that's that's easier said than done. You know, out in my area, I am I have some CRP ground that I'm actually putting into production. Uh, but that first crop isn't always the best crop. It isn't always the easiest crop. And and just the fact, and what are we talking? Maybe 3 million acres, but this is the rough 3 million acres. You're not going to get 200 bushel corn on that. You might be lucky to get 80 bushel corn. So I, I, I just don't think that could really, it'd be a Band-Aid if that. So it's sort of like the Petroleum Reserve taking 60 million barrels out of the ground. Uh, you know, that's only two or three days worth of of usage. So that's not going to go very far. No, it's not. And USDA has been calling around to different analysts a couple of days saying, what can they do to increase food production or grain production in the U.S.? CRP is an interesting idea, but I, I'm, not, I'm not sure there's an exit door unless legislatively uh, the Congress wants to pass a different mindset to let people out of contracts. So, you know, it was a 10-year contract. Uh, big penalties if you take land out. I, I don't think most farmers at this point are inclined to do so unless uh, there's an exit door, which at least in the regulations as we see it are is, is not there without uh, congressional approval. But I'd like to be wrong on that, Paul. If there's a, if we can find someone to comment on that, that'd be great. But we've been calling around and uh, trying to understand how acreage could leave CRP in a, in a financially fiduciary right responsibility, but I, I don't see it today. Yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, Congress would have to step in and say emergency action or something like that. But, uh, uh, you know, based on this Congress, the ability so far to get anything done in the last year and a half, that's not going to happen. So uh, now, again, this is different times. Maybe something would happen. But um, now, if if let's say, you know, that this continues for another month and and Putin is successful in taking over Ukraine and Ukraine comes offline for this year. What do you have any ideas where you think corn, wheat, soybean prices might go? I'm not asking you to have the perfect crystal ball because nobody knows. But wh- what do you think might happen if if Ukraine really does come off offline for the whole for this whole crop year? Yeah, so I remember that Ukraine would produce a corn crop somewhere around, let's use 40 million metric tons, of which they export about 30 million metric tons. So, you know, that's that's not a small amount. Um, I'm just pushing my calculator now, 39.3. That's uh, 1.2 billion bushels of U.S. corn, uh, as we think about it as farmers and traders here in the United States. So as 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 that amount of uh, that amount of uh, demand push other countries, whether that be maybe India, they sell some feed wheat, or maybe down in our friends of Brazil or Latin America, they could maybe bump up production. But you know, it's it's a big big chore for the market. If we assume that Ukraine is likely to be out for a year, you know, we almost got to think about corn being above eight dollars. So I know we made it up today to seven seventy, and the market's trying to get there. 
but an $8 price for corn is reasonable. Soybeans would hang between $15 and $18 for an extended period of time. And if we had weather problems, Paul, I don't know how high is high, but then I'm saying some kind of expansion of the dryness in the plains and through uh, portions of the Western Corn Belt. And then, you know, I guess I'm focusing going out even a little further. Does that then provide some opportunities maybe on the 23 and the 24 crop for farmers to lock in a little bit of that? I mean, is because, you know, I remember back in 2012, you know, there were certainly at the peak there, there was good opportunities in, in 13 and 14 and 15 even, but people didn't want to pull the trigger. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? You know, this is where this one becomes a little different. And this is not, uh, if we go back to 2012, that was a supply-driven rally with a dire U.S. drought and, of course, the maturation of the U.S. ethanol industry. We kind of see this, and you you can look at the Board of Trade. I mean, December, we can go all the way out to 2025 now and look at December corn futures. All of them are very close or above $5 a bushel. The lowest one is going to be December of 25 corn at 484 so, you know, U.S. farmers have never had the opportunity to lock in $5 corn all the way out to 2025. What are we talking here? Three crop years. Yeah, I don't actually, have a problem four, selling. Four, four, 22, four 23, 24, years, and 25. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. four crop years. I'm glad you're the accountant with me today. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a strange predicament. I don't have a problem doing 10 or 20 percent, something like that. But I don't want to get over my skis because, yep. you know, the the market really needs to buy 25 million acres globally to make sure that we're balancing ourselves out. And I, I think that takes high prices for an extended period of time, even assuming Ukraine and Russia come back online. So uh, this is uh, kind of a super cycle for the grain markets in agriculture that we think lasts at least three or four years. So are you saying I was lucky that I started buying farmland two years ago? You know, I, I think it's just pure luck. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, and I didn't realize I was actually going to make some money. So uh, this, this is a different, uh, being a farm boy, you know, I grew up on a wheat farm here in Washington State. And, uh, and uh, this is just a little bit different feeling. So, and of course, for a lot of our farmers, the last seven years, you know, maybe even the last eight years, well, Last year was a good year, but you know the six or seven years before that, uh, certainly they they used up a fair amount of equity. So this this is good for them to get some of that back. Well, right now we're going to go ahead and take a break for a sponsor message, and then we'll come back and continue the conversation. Get timely updates about taxation, accounting, succession planning, and other issues that are unique to farmers and agribusiness processors. Find out about major agribusiness events and how to comply with new laws that affect your business. Subscribe to Farm CPA at blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness and experience the CLA promise. blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness. Welcome back, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm Paul Neifer, your host, and today I'm welcoming Dan Bassey from Ag Resource. Um, I guess when we were at Top, we were at Top Producer a couple of weeks ago, and and you were on a panel with a couple of others talking about SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, and so on. 
Uh, I know right now maybe that's a little bit on the back burner with everything going on with Ukraine and, and Russia and so on. But where, where do you see that going? How is that all going to shake out in the industry? Well, we've got there's there's really I think in, if we go back and look at agricultural history, maybe back to 1880, we call it demand drivers, at least in my shop, that has given agricultural a bump, a profitable bump in the arm in terms of, you know, uh, equity and farmland prices going up and, and we're all making more money. And they can be anything from reconstruction efforts from world wars or maybe even the Russians coming with their gold bars in the 1970s and the failure of their collective farm system to where we are today. But what's interesting about this one is there's actually two demand drivers, which is, you know, the Chinese have learned because of African swine fever that they should not be feeding food waste because it spreads the disease. So they have banned that. That means that China's importing probably 30 to 40 million metric tons of corn annually, uh, unless corn prices get too high and maybe the Chinese need to think differently about food waste. The other one, as you mentioned, is this uh, renewable green fuels kick, whether it's renewable diesel or sustainable aviation fuel, which we call SAF, both of them are very potent as we build out the industry and find ways for the fossil fuel refineries to again, bring back production and be a low carbon contributor to the environment. Uh, soybean oil or, so or grease or lard will be first, but this SAF or sustainable aviation fuel looks to use ethanol. And this is going to be very important as more and more of the U.S. auto supply becomes electrified. As we get to 2030, we think maybe upwards of 28 to 40 percent of the U.S. auto fleet will be electrified. And that means you're going to have less gas consumption. You're going to have uh, less, of course, ethanol blending. And so combined, we need to have another demand driver. And that's where this uh, aviation fuel, sustainable aviation fuel comes in, because nobody wants to get on a plane that's powered by batteries. So no, this no. will be very important and it'll take us that next level. And I, I think it's that bridge, uh, Paul, that uh, makes uh, agriculture uh, more important to consumers, at least uh, as, as we turn to a new decade. And and certainly, you know, aviation fuel and i I've had pilot lessons. I've uh, I I know enough to be dangerous, but my memory is on that fuel. It is a higher octane. I mean, it's 110, and and traditionally, isn't ethanol a little bit higher octane than regular gases anyway? Yeah, we really need we really need the oxygen net for these uh, current uh, uh, engines to run well. By that, I'm saying uh, the combustion engine runs a high, better on the uh, on the higher octane levels, and so that's where ethanol is so important. Um, I would argue even if uh, even if somehow we got rid of ethanol, I'm not sure the blend rates would change that much today. But the worry is down the road that as we get more electrical automobiles and we get that, uh, the, the, I should say, the mileage worked out. So at each charge, we're getting four to five hundred miles of charge. Then we're going to start to see that transition. And I, I that's where I was worried about ethanol in terms of a mature industry. But I think this aviation fuel if we were to fill just 20% of that, it would take care of all of the the ethanol demand that would be lost through electrification. So that's why I'm saying I think there's a bridge to profitability and and, and biofuels that rests in the future. And and let's say that, you know, eventually that industry um, or the aviation industry really wants to have close to 100% of it being SAF. How many acres, you know, oh. of production would that be? We honestly can't fill it. We would have to bring in folks from South America or Russia or somewhere else. 
we we don't have enough landmass in the United States to still feel it, feed livestock and do everything else. Uh, but it would be sizable. I, I you know I haven't really worked into the math because we know on renewable diesel, which is probably the first one here, that if indeed the industry builds out as its forecast and we're using 80% utilization rate in 2025, that I need about, oh, somewhere in the vicinity of 28 million extra acres of soybeans. Now that's assuming a fairly sizable diminishment of, of, of biodiesel. Renewable diesel is different than biodiesel. And as, as, as it goes through a hydrocracker, the added oxygen and it becomes just like diesel. Renewable diesel is kind of the splash and dash where we put a mixture together with some petroleum products and then we blend it. And we of course sell those during the, the summertime and the warm months. Right. Renewable diesel is really a big deal. And uh, uh, the plants that are going up in the investment with another 17 crush facilities make it uh, a very bullish argument for the veg oil side of thing. Um, with California, you know, offering incentives upwards of $4 a gallon. So um, it's something we're looking at. It's going to be, it's going to take three years to fully build out. But I would imagine with plants coming online starting in about June of this year, the soybean oil market will take notice and we're just not going to have enough soybean oil. So how we buy all of the acres, Paul, corn, soybeans to run these uh, green fuels, it's a good, good question for the years ahead. But I think it keeps the American farmer smiling, at least for now. Well, that's uh, that's good because now I consider myself to be an American farmer too, so that's good. Um, Twenty-eight million acres. That's because uh, right now we're roughly ninety million plus or minus acres for both corn and soybeans. So you're really talking, you know, do, it's not going to pull directly from the corn acres, is it? I mean, does it pull well, that, from wheat? That- does it- that's why we started out discussion on what I call peak farmland in the United States. There is not a way that utilizes or bring that much productivity into in into production. And so somehow California, Oregon, Washington, where these states are promoting these renewable diesel now, is going to have to lower their standards. Right now, it's all about U.S. produced vegetable oils or grease or lard. Um, they're going to have to include things like canola oil. Uh, maybe some other oils if they really want to meet their targets, because I don't have 28 million acres that I can shift uh, to soybeans from corn, because if I do that, I just run flat out of corn very quickly. So it, it's it's a it's a matrix that's in development. Today, it doesn't work. It's an impossibility. We'll have to see how the legislation and the policy changes in years to come to make it work. Now, you know, global warming has been a term that's used or climate change and i agree there's climate change but i think there's been climate change we go back to the ice age i mean we've had climate change throughout history and i don't know how much is is man-made but you know as that as we move north and it gets warmer do you see that corn belt moving north i mean the corn belt is going to be into pretty soon it's going to be in upper manitoba uh, and so on. Do you see that trend continuing? Or again, you're not a weather person, but it's just something I've always been curious about. Well, I hire, we have on staff a climate scientist. So we try to take science, we try to take climate a little longer than a two week forecast. And he would agree with you that, you know, the poles are warming and the jet stream is losing its velocity, which gives us what we call pattern stagnation. Um, And it's seemingly interesting that you can see that in the last two growing seasons. I mean, the extreme heat over Canada and then the extreme heat over places like Paraguay, northern Argentina in January, where, I mean, records were just smashed over a period of 10 days. So 
we think this trend persists. In fact, we're seeing about twice the number of floods and twice the number of droughts as the prior decades. And so uh, I have no idea whether it's man-made or I don't even want to get into that debate, Paul, but I do believe that weather is constantly changing. It's dynamic. And it, for the moment, it's not changing in the favor of, of, of food production globally. So um, this is why per capita global yields on, on the, all of the major crops put together in one barrel and stirred up is, is stagnated. And that's not happened before that we can find looking backwards to the 1960s. Yeah, and I think I just read a study or an article a couple of weeks ago about, you know, we thought that the increase in yields was related to genetics. And really what it was, was again, wasn't part of that. We had very favorable climate trends over the last 20 or 30 years. And like you're saying now, that that really is starting to to level off. It is. And so I think we need to look at maybe expanding our cropping in different seasons. I mean, camellia, some other crops that you can plant after corn and soybean harvest in September, October, uh, then harvest them in late April and May, provide some oilseed uh, possibilities. I, I think this is maybe one way to get to more oilseed production. Uh, and we need to think as farmers to that. But, you know, it's going to take a policy decision from USDA to provide some incentive for us farmers to plant these uh, cover crops. I mean, I think we always like cover crops in terms of soil organic matter and what it does in terms of uh, limiting wind erosion during the wintertime. But that being said, if we're going to be planting corn in May, not uh, mid-April, uh, we are going to need some extra risk premium from the government for that activity. Yeah, yeah, because that's uh, uh, that that's uh, can create some issues, especially in that July August uh, uh, pollination period if you're planting that late in the season. So, um, what uh, will Brazil continue to add? What a million, two million, three million hectares every year, or how much longer can that trend last? So the latest calculation from Brazil is there's about twenty eight. Uh, 28 million hectares that can still be brought in a plow without really touching the Amazon. This would be in the Cerrados pasture lands, which would be available. There's probably another 22 or 23 million hectares or acres, I guess I should say. Let's call them acres in in, in uh, the Black Sea, the old collective farm system of Ukraine and Russia. So there are those additionality in acres. We don't reach peak world farmland until about 26 year 2065, I, I hope I'm alive, but I'm not expecting it. But <laughs> that being said, uh, that's when the fun really begins because then it is all about yield. I mean, uh, the world will have to figure out different ways of enhancing yield because it just will run out of arable land that is feasible to farm. Well, and then as population continues to expand, both in numbers and I think in just, you know, branching out away from cities and just taking more and more valuable production out of ground out of production that's also going to affect that trend oh absolutely urbanization will continue to steal farmland and uh, i think uh, if you look at the inner part of chicago these days i was down there in my office yesterday it is still a ghost town and uh, i know employees are not willing to at least at this point go back to the old work regime yeah, and it's interesting because we're, I'm a little bit more rural. I mean, I'm in a city, uh, Walla Walla, which is where my main office is at, is about 60,000 people. And, you know, we're, I won't say we're back to normal, but, you know, we're in offices and so on. But I think you're right that New York, that Chicago, that downtown LA, downtown San Francisco, uh, really the, the, the five day work week is probably gone. 
Is that what you're finding as far as people oh, coming yeah, into yeah. the I, office five it, days it, a week? Is, they're willing to come in for collaboration Tuesday or Thursday, but that's about it, uh, Paul. So uh, we have office space to collaborate now, but we do most of our work from home and uh, people just don't want to spend the hour, hour and a half commuting and and then trudging to the office and all that goes with it. So I've I've been trying to get everybody back at work, but I'm going to lose that battle. I can see that already. Yeah, I got to admit that, uh, you know, I was in my Wawa office, but I actually have a little Dayton office here that's only got like one room. And I went home, I had lunch with my wife, and then I changed out of my uh, out of my dress uh, slacks and put on shorts. So I will admit that uh, I'm in shorts right now, even though it's raining, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be in shorts. So <laughs> but, at least uh, it's warm enough. You wouldn't wear shorts in Chicago today, but anyway, uh, no, well, you know, and, well, three days ago, I think it was Monday. It was 72 degrees here, or 74 degrees. Yeah, uh, now it's about 40. So, uh, uh, yeah, spring, spring's getting here, but it's not quite here yet. But, uh, well, how often are you in your Geneva or your Sao Paulo office? Well, we, we have not been as often as we would like to be uh, because of COVID and travel restrictions. It's made it a little different, but I try to try and go to both places a couple of times a year. We hold a global grain conference in Geneva, Switzerland. We did one last October. We have the world grain industry come in. I think we had about 500 people at our last meeting. So it's it's good to get everybody back together again and talk about things because of what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. We're doing another one in May. So you know, these are the kind of forums that the world agricultural industry can come together. All the commercials are there and we talk about, you know, the the, the speed bumps and potholes and opportunities that are ahead of us. And um, I think there's a lot of people optimistic on agriculture, but I'll also tell you that there's a lot of fear regarding economic activity and what central banks will be doing in raising interest rates. Uh, it does look like rates will be going up substantially over the next couple of years and how that all plays in the commodity and, and farmland values will be very interesting to watch. Yeah. Although I think uh, you're, you're seeing the Federal Reserve at least hesitate a little bit. I, I think, you know, two weeks ago there was a, you know, pretty strong chance that they'd raise maybe 50 basis points here in a couple of weeks. But now I think, it, it, you know, they've already come out, Powell's come out and said it's only going to be 25 basis points. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, well, what time or what what date is that event in Geneva? Uh, it's the 17th to the 20th uh, held at the President Wilson Hotel in Geneva, Switzerland. And so uh, we've always done it there and it's a it's a nice opportunity. But if any of your listeners want to come, uh, they can fly over and we'll happily uh, it, you know entertain them. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Well, Dan, this has been very informative. Uh, I didn't realize when I reached out to you, you know, a couple of weeks ago that, uh, you know, that uh, we'd have this much change going on. But uh, uh, the only thing that's certain in life, I guess, is that we will have change and then we just have to react to it. Well, it's a little more change than I like, Paul, but uh, I'm afraid that uh, the hand we've been dealt will be with us now until we, ass we, we assure ourselves some big crops and China, the United States, and Europe, and uh, we'll have to measure after that. But uh, the, the the markets are going to be so volatile and so dynamic that I, I want to caution everybody to be careful in terms of what they're doing. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, Dan, thank you very much. This has uh, been the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer, and this is Paul Niefer, uh signing off.